Have you ever had some really, really good news that you wanted to share, some really exciting news that you couldn't wait to share with your friends and family, and you go ahead and share it with your friends and family, and all of a sudden you discover that someone in the group is a major wet blanket? And it's like, and they just take the wind out of your sails, and they're just a naysayer. I have found online this week some of the greatest naysayers of the past 200 years. Some of these, I think, are pretty funny. Uh, if this first one's not funny, just wait for another one. Maybe it will be. The steam locomotive was invented in 1804. And over the next 35 years after the steam locomotive was invented, uh, the technological advancements progressed quite a bit, at least for the 19th century. And so in 1840... Many experts, as they saw the advancement of the locomotive engine, many experts said that anyone traveling at the speed of 30 miles per hour would surely suffocate. I know about you, but uh, I think there's millions of dogs across our nation that stick their head out the car window at 60 miles an hour these days that might disagree with those experts in the 19th century. Those were some major wet blankets. 1878, many people said, quote, electric lights are unworthy of any serious consideration. Aren't you glad we don't have to just burn a room full of candles in here today? While in acting school, Lucille Ball was told that she couldn't act. Charles Schultz was told that he was terrible at drawing cartoons. Catch this, Walt Disney was told that he had no imagination. And Michael Jordan was cut from his high school basketball team. One of my favorites, I didn't realize this, in the early 60s, a prominent recording company wrote the Beatles and said this to the Beatles, quote, We don't like your sound, and besides, guitar music is on the way out. <laughs> Major wet blankets, major naysayers, and over the past two weeks as we've been diving into Luke chapters 4 and the first half of Luke chapter 5, we've seen that after Jesus was chased out of his hometown of Nazareth, his popularity was rising. As Jesus preached in synagogues throughout Galilee, large crowds would gather to hear him, whether he was in a house or in a synagogue. Sometimes he couldn't be contained in a single uh, room of any kind, so he would go out on the countryside, in a valley, on a mountainside, as we saw last week, at times even on the beach. And sometimes on these large, in these larger outdoor settings, hundreds or even thousands of people would gather to hear Jesus. For a good little while, Jesus' supporters were many, and his naysayers were few. But as we turn today to Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 17. All of that is going to change. Gone are going to be the days when his supporters are many and his naysayers are few. And so Jesus is going to, in this chapter, encounter some wet blankets. Oh, I mean Pharisees. He's going to encounter some Pharisees and teachers of the law that are going to be some of the biggest naysayers from this point forward in his ministry. So please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 17. If you're using one of those blue Bibles from the rack in front of you, you'll find it on page 1019. I rest of you, please turn in your Bibles to Luke 5:17, And I'm just going to stop for a moment and listen to the beautiful sound of Bible pages turning. Uh, one of my favorite sounds in the whole world. So dig into God's Word with us today, as today's message is called Opposition rising. Would you pray with me? Lord, once again, we come to you to dive into your word. And I think Patrick said it so well in his prayer earlier, Lord, we're prepared and ready to dive into your word. And we just ask, oh God, that you would speak to us, that you would speak to our minds and hearts. And Lord, I pray that you'd shut out the worries in our minds. May we not be worried about uh, a game six in the World Series, Lord. May we not be worried, Lord, about work tomorrow or or the bills awaiting us at home. May we just be able to focus on you today because, Lord, your word is worthy of our complete attention. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 17, look over the shoulder of the person next to you. Make sure they're ready in their Bibles. Are they ready? Okay. Luke 5, starting in 17. One day... 
as Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem were sitting there. And the power of the Lord was present for Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they lowered him on his mat through the tiles in the middle into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this? Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, Get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, We have seen remarkable things today. May God bless us as we study his word this morning together. In most of our Bibles, the translators tend to put a heading above verse 17. Uh, in the NIV, that heading tends to read something like this, Jesus heals a paralytic. And so in your Bible, you probably find a, a similar subheading up above verse 17. And so the translators are letting you know this is beginning a new little section, uh, a new little story of what Jesus did during his ministry. And so most commentators who are commenting on this chapter will tend to follow the translator's lead and will section off verse 17 and following from what took place in verse 16 in that prior part of this chapter. But as I was looking at a number of commentaries, I introduced you to those commentaries a couple weeks ago. One of those I like is William Barclay's, written over 100 years ago. And in Barclay's commentary, he does something different than most commentators. He puts verse 17 together with the prior verse 16. And so look at your Bibles again. Be reminded of what was said in verse 16, the last verse we looked at last week. Verse 16 simply says, But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. And William Barclay makes the case that verse 16 should be looked at together with verse 17, and here's what he writes in his commentary. Before Jesus met the opposition... He withdrew to pray. The love in the eyes of God compensated him for the hate in the eyes of men. The approval of God nerved him to meet the criticism of men. He drew strength for the battle of life from the peace of God, and it is enough for the disciple that he should be as his Lord. Isn't that good? Isn't that insightful? I don't know about you, but I love those words. It's no accident that Jesus was in the regular habit of going off alone and spending quality time with God the Father. You see, Jesus knew what was coming. Jesus knew that the days of having plenty of supporters and hardly any critics were quickly coming to an end. And he knew that once the criticism from the religious leaders began, that criticism and naysaying and attack would not end until he was crucified on that cross. You think about it, once the Pharisees and teachers of the law began their criticism, it did not end until Jesus was dead. And Jesus knew this ahead of time. And so he spent some serious time getting away alone with God, and Barclay says it so well, the love in the eyes of God compensated him for the hate in the eyes of men. The approval of God nerved him to meet the criticism of men. It's one thing I like about these old commentaries. We don't speak like that these days, do we? That love of God and the approval of God nerved him to handle the abuse and the attacks that came. He drew strength for the battle of life from the peace of God. Now, friends, why do we so often become weary in doing good and get so discouraged when people criticize us and attack us 
and, and, and naysay what God has put on our hearts to do. I'm convinced that one of the reasons we get so discouraged when we're criticized for our faith is because we're not spending some serious time alone with God. We're not spending some serious time soaking in His love and embracing His approval and and embracing His strength and His peace. So often, if we were in Jesus' shoes and we were going along in those early years of ministry, or early months, I should say, of ministry, and everyone was, was commenting on how wonderful we are, people were amazed at our teaching, people were amazed at what we did, and all of this amazement surrounded Jesus, and there he was on the beach a few days earlier, and there were so many people he had to sit in a boat to teach them, and as he looked out on the shore, probably thousands of people gathered there, hanging on his every word. We have a tendency when things are going really well to say, you know what, God, you go ahead and sit this one out, I'm doing okay. I'm good. But Jesus knew what was coming. And so even though it seemed through to his five senses that everything was going well and would continue to go well, he knew it was coming. And he spent some serious time with God. And I believe that Jesus was able to withstand the small criticism and withstand the great criticism and even withstand crucifixion in large part because he was so tight in His communication chain with God the Father. You and I need to take heed. Now, the story of Jesus' healing of the paralytic here in this chapter is also recorded for us in Matthew chapter 9, verses 2 through 8, and Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So if you're doing a Bible study on this passage, it's a good idea to look at all three of those together because Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you take these accounts of the healing of the paralytic together and you're able to learn some details that you wouldn't get in any one of those three accounts by itself. So we learn in Matthew and Mark that this incident took place in Capernaum which was closer than any other town to Jesus' new home city. Jesus was teaching inside a home, we learn from Mark. And as he's teaching inside a home, it was probably Peter's house. It's the best guess that we have, but we don't know for sure. And it was standing room only inside this home. And we learn in Mark that it was so crowded inside that house that people were crowding on the front doormat in front of the house because they couldn't fit inside, so they were spilling out into the courtyard. And so this place was packed. And that's important to keep in mind as those men come carrying the man on the mat who's paralyzed. They can't even get to the front door, let alone make their way into the house. It's interesting that archaeological excavations in Capernaum have revealed that at this point in time in Jesus' day, uh, the larger houses in Capernaum were only about 18 feet wide. So, so we know from these archaeological excavations that if Simon Peter, or whoever's house this was, had a larger home there in Capernaum, then it was probably no more than about 16 to 18 feet wide. And you quickly do the math, that would be able to hold about 50 people standing shoulder to shoulder inside that home. So you imagine the scene, normally you'd be able to have about 50 people standing, and so if a normal crowd of several hundred was gathered to hear Jesus, you likely had a couple hundred people spilling out in front of the house. It it seems that those gathered here in Capernaum were not just alone, because Luke makes it clear that along with those coming to hear Jesus from the town were also Pharisees and teachers of the law who had gathered not just from that town of Capernaum, But as Luke says, they gathered from every village of Galilee and also from the southern region of Judea and also from Jerusalem. So it seems clear that what was happening here is this memo went out to all the Pharisees and teachers of the law throughout Israel. And this memo basically said, Jesus of Nazareth is back in Capernaum. All these crowds are gathering around him. We need to do our due diligence and check this guy out. So we're going to meet on this certain day in Capernaum, and we are going to sit back and listen to this guy, and we're going to see if he's on the up and up. And so the memo goes out, and all these Pharisees and teachers of the law gather from all over Israel, and it says many of them are sitting inside this house. Remember I said you can hold in that house 50 people standing. What are these guys doing sitting down? They're taking up too much space, don't you think? Keep that in mind because that will be important later as we dive into this a little bit more. Now, who are these Pharisees? 
That word Pharisee comes from a Hebrew word that means to divide or to separate. So they were, in a sense, separatists and dividers. About 500 years before Christ's birth, Ezra the priest was leading a group of the Israelites back from Babylon after their captivity in Babylon. Remember what happened to those two tribes in the south. The line of David, Solomon, and his sons were leading. And what happened several years later was King Babylon came and he conquered Jerusalem. He burned the gates around the city. He knocked the city walls down. He burned the temple to the ground. And he took thousands of those Jewish people as POWs back to Babylon. And just as God had promised in the book of Jeremiah, that captivity was going to last 70 years. And as they came back in waves after that 70-year period, they came back into Israel, that homeland that they'd been away from for 70 years. And Ezra was one of their leaders. And if you look in the book of Ezra, you see that his call, his charge to the Israelite people as they were coming back to their homeland was to separate themselves from the pagan nations around them and separate themselves for God. So as best as we can tell, during this period of Ezra, shortly thereafter, some 500 years B.C., that these Pharisees developed as a sect of Judaism. Long story short, the Pharisees wanted to understand God's laws, and they wanted to live out God's laws scrupulously in their everyday lives. And so we look at the Pharisees, and their origins seem to be very, very good. Their intentions and their their motivations seem to be very good. They wanted to understand God's laws. That's a good thing, isn't it? They wanted to live out God's laws. That's a good thing, isn't it? But as time went on, rather quickly it seems, these Pharisees became very legalistic. And in those 500 years leading up to Jesus' birth, what happens is these Pharisees as a sect of Judaism they begin coming up with all of these extra laws to add to the Old Testament laws. So remember, God gave Ten Commandments, two tablets underneath Moses' arms. For the Pharisees, they believed that the Ten Commandments were too vague. And so they added thousands of other laws on top of the Ten Commandments. For instance, commandment number four in the Ten Commandments says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. So on six days you should work. And on the seventh day, the Sabbath, you need to cease your work and rest and worship God instead. And so the Pharisees came along and they said, it's not enough to say, remember the Sabbath day and don't do any work. We've got to define what work is. And we have to be very, very clear and and give every meticulous detail about what work does and does not include. And so it's kind of interesting. They come up with these thousands of different laws. These laws are known as the oral tradition, the oral tradition. And so when Jesus uh, and in in the Gospels, you find referred to the oral traditions or the teachings of uh, the the, uh, Jewish leaders, that's what's being referred to. These uh, these handed down word of mouth laws that were added to the Old Testament laws in those centuries leading up to Christ's birth. Interestingly, about 300 years after Christ in the third century, Those laws, the oral tradition laws, were written down. Finally, they were written down, and it's in a collection known to Jews as the Mishnah. So the Mishnah is a collection of those thousands of Jewish laws. And catch this. In the Mishnah, I mentioned that fourth command, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Guess how many chapters are devoted to the specifics of how to do that in the Mishnah? There are 24 chapters giving every minute detail about what is and isn't work to the Jewish people. And so it's remarkable that all of these laws were added. It was absolutely nutty how legalistic they had become. I'll give you a few quick examples. There in the oral tradition that was eventually written down in the Mishnah, uh, these teachers of the law and Pharisees spelled this out. If you are carrying food on the Sabbath day, That food cannot be heavier than a single dried fig. If you carry a single dried fig, that's not work. Anything heavier than a single dried fig is. Well, what about if I'm thirsty? It's a hot day out. I'm sweating a bit. Well, water that is more than it takes to moisten an eye salve is work. 
how much water does it take to moisten an eye salve? Like maybe a, a teardrop worth? Any more than that if you're carrying it around. They said that was work. And they went beyond that and they said, you know what? If someone gets injured on the Sabbath day, it's okay to put a Band-Aid on that wound. However, under no circumstances on, on the Sabbath day are you allowed to put any sort of medicine on the Band-Aid. So if you get a scrape on the Sabbath day, yeah, you can put the Band-Aid on, but don't you dare put Neosporin on that Band-Aid because you put Neosporin on it, that's work. If someone got injured and needed to go to the medical authorities on the Sabbath day, the rule the Pharisees and teachers of the law carried out was this. You can stop the bleeding. You can do what it takes to keep him from getting worse, but you may not do anything to make him better. Because if you do anything to make him better on the Sabbath day, that constitutes work. And so you get an idea of these thousands of laws that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law held dear. So let me just define how the teachers of the law and the Pharisees were in those days uh, by just condensing into one slide for you here. So the teachers of the law, some of your translations, we use the term scribes. They're the same thing. Teachers of the law, scribes, same group. They were the Jewish legal experts who knew the Old Testament laws and the thousands of extra oral tradition laws backward and forward. Okay? So these were the legal experts. They liked to have these teachers of the law in every town in Israel in Jesus' day because they would train the young boys in the ways of the Torah, the Old Testament law. And they would also train the young Jewish boys in the ways of the oral tradition, those thousands of extra man-made laws. Now the Pharisees, they were the legalists who prided themselves in consistently separating themselves from the unwashed masses and obeying every single one of these thousands of laws. Ironically, these religious leaders who most Jewish people looked up to as good and righteous and wonderful role models, they would be the very ones who would petition for Jesus to be crucified on that cross. Rather ironic. Look at verses 18 and 19 again. Some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles in the middle of the, into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. So in Mark 2, Mark tells us that there were four men who carried the mat. So as you've probably seen the, the cartoon drawings over the years or maybe a painting depicting what was happening in this scene, you normally find one man on each of the four corners of that mat. That's probably what was happening. Four men, four corners in a mat. So you can imagine they didn't have handles in these mats, so kind of bunching up the corner and carrying your corner along with three other guys, lugging this 150-pound man, however much he weighed, over to this house where Jesus was. And I want you to kind of get a visual here of, of what kind of house this would have been. So here's an image of a house in Galilee in Jesus' day. And so uh, this house where he was teaching, probably much like the one in the middle, where you see that there was a flat roof. And interestingly, in those days, when they had a flat roof on these smaller homes, to add a little extra square footage, they would have a living area up on that flat roof, and access to the living area would be provided by an exterior staircase, like you see in the photo there. And so they would have this staircase that would lead up to the flat roof, and that way, on a nice day, you could sit up on the roof, or if you had visitors at times, you might even put a bed up there and they would sleep on the roof. Uh, you did what you had to do to increase your square footage in a small home. And so, interestingly, the roof in those days, we'll put that photo up for you, uh, was made like this. They would have these beams that would be stretched across uh, the width or the length of the house. And between those beams, they would pack these smaller sticks and branches. And so they would pack these between the beams, and then they would seal them in place with some dried mud that would act as a mortar. And so this was your typical Galilean roof, beams with sticks and dry mud in between those beams. Now Luke here mentions, Matthew and Mark don't say this, but Luke mentions there were some roof tiles. That was more of a Roman style of roof construction, and so likely they had this Galilean style with maybe some roofs that had to be moved away as well when they wanted to dig through the roof. But by and large, this being the basic structure, it wasn't that difficult to, to, to dig through a roof in those days. You know, it's not like they were going through hundreds of nails that had nailed some tiles into the roof. They basically were scraping away that dry mud, 
pulling out these sticks all the way down to those main beams that were running across uh, the top of those walls supporting the house. And so here they were, and in verse 20, it says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friends, your sins are forgiven. Friend, your sins are forgiven. So what happens is they clear away the mud, they clear away the sticks, they expose the beams. One thing I've always wondered is, if the owner of the house was there in the room, what was this guy thinking when he hears a commotion up on his roof and, and dust starts to kind of flicker down from the roof, and within a few minutes he goes to having a skylight in the middle of his room? Now, I wonder what that owner was thinking. If he wanted to run outside and tell him what's what, he probably couldn't get out there fast enough because there were so many people crowded in the doorway. And so they, they heard him yelling from underneath. They ignored him. They kept digging. And they exposed the roof. And as you've probably seen in those paintings or those, those cartoon pictures, they do their best to lower him between those beams on that mat down right in front of Jesus. And Jesus, once again there, verse 20, sees their faith. And he says, friend, your sins are forgiven. Now, isn't that an odd thing for Jesus to say? Everyone in that room knew why these four friends had brought this guy to Jesus who was paralyzed and lying on a mat. Everyone in the room knew that this guy was being let down on the mat because he couldn't walk. These guys were bringing him to Jesus because Jesus in recent weeks had been healing lepers He had been healing blind people. He had been driving out demons. Any disease that came to him, he was healing. Obviously, these friends were bringing their their buddy to Jesus on this mat to have him heal his legs. These legs didn't work. And what an odd thing for Jesus to say, friend, your sins are forgiven. Have a nice day. Hmm. But Jesus doesn't heal the man's legs, at least not right away. He talks about his sins. I want to suggest to you there are at least two reasons why Jesus first said, your sins are forgiven. For starters, Jesus knew that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who were sitting there taking up too much room in that house, Jesus knew that they believed that personal sin was the reason this man was crippled in the first place. You remember that story in John chapter 9? Verse 2, Jesus and his disciples are walking through Jerusalem. They see a man there on the side of the path, and that man is blind. And they somehow knew that he was born blind. And so one of Jesus' disciples asked the question that was on all 12 of the disciples' minds, Hey, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, why would they think that that was the case, that this man had somehow sinned and God struck him with blindness as a result of that? They believed that because that's what the Pharisees and teachers of the law in those days believed. They believed if someone had some sort of crippling disease, in this case this man was paralyzed and his legs didn't work, they believed, pardon the French, it was his own damn fault. That's what they believed. And I realize that wasn't French. Now I'll say it for you in French. No, I'm just kidding. So... They believed it was his fault. And so Jesus says, son, your sins, or friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees believed that the man was crippled in the first place because of his sin. And so Jesus, does he not address the root that they believed was the very reason he's crippled in the first place? He addresses the root of the problem. Interesting. So they come, and they're sitting down, and they're hanging on Jesus' every word, and they're wondering what Jesus is going to do with this crippled man because they've heard these stories that have been circulating all through Israel about this miracle worker Jesus, and they want to know if Jesus is going to be able to heal him, and he doesn't say anything about healing. The first thing he says is, your sins are forgiven. And you know what? They probably said to themselves, well, if Jesus can heal him, he probably shouldn't heal him because, once again, he's that way because God wants him that way because of his own sin. It's his own fault. It's his own fault. But Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, friend. Your sins are forgiven. And and the Pharisees start to struggle a little bit with that, don't they? They don't like Jesus saying that because he's not supposed to forgive sins. We'll get to that in a moment. Second reason I believe that Jesus said first, your sins are forgiven, is because Jesus understood that the paralyzed man's soul needed healing much more than his legs did. Isn't that true? 
His soul needed healing much more than his legs did. I like how Matthew Henry comments on this. He writes, sin is the fountain of all sickness. And the forgiveness of sin is the only foundation upon which a recovery from sickness can comfortably be built. When we are sick, we should be more in care to get our sins pardoned than to get our sickness removed. Christ, in what he said to this man, taught us when we seek to God for health to begin with seeking to him for pardon. I like that. Now, we don't want to misunderstand what he's saying here. He's not going along with the Pharisees and teachers of the law saying this man has this crippling paralysis as a direct result of his own sin or his parents' sin. That's not what Matthew Henry's saying. But he is saying that indirectly all, sin, all sickness in this life is the result of sin. Indirectly. Because remember, in the Garden of Eden, there was no cancer. In the Garden of Eden, there was no paralysis. In the Garden of Eden, there was no blindness. There was no leprosy. There were no STDs. In the Garden of Eden, there was none of this illness. There was none of this disease. Because in the perfect world that God created that had not been tainted by sin, there was no human sickness and disease. And when sin entered the world, it began a negative ripple effect that eventually led to this day, 2018, where we have thousands upon thousands of different diseases and ailments that can afflict someone today. So Matthew Henry is correct that ultimately there is a root behind every illness, and that is sin. It may not be directly in this man's case, but because he lives in a fallen world where sickness is one of those results of sin, certainly addressing that root is the most important thing. I think that's well said what he says. Ultimately, every man's spiritual need is greater than his physical need. So Jesus addressed the paralyzed man's greatest need first. Now, I'd like you to notice the choice of pronouns in verse 20. This is important. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. You notice that before? When he saw their faith, who's there? Seems to be those four friends, doesn't it? When he saw their faith, enough faith to tear through a a stranger's roof, that takes some faith. Enough faith to lower him down through the roof in front of Jesus into a crowd that's not too happy about all the dust on their heads. Maybe some of those branches fell down in the process. Guy got clocked in the head. Hey, you know, he's not too happy with those guys on the roof. But they had enough faith to do it anyway. Because of their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Doesn't that seem to run contrary to our doctrine of salvation? Doesn't it? It doesn't seem like that jives with the New Testament. Teresa says, uh, God, uh, Dane is not a Christian. Would you forgive his sins so he can go to heaven? And God says, okay, because Teresa prayed. It doesn't matter if Dane has any desire to accept Christ or not. Dane's going to be saved anyway. That certainly seems to go against God's word. So how could Jesus say because of their faith, This guy has his sins forgiven. Whose faith inspired Jesus to forgive the man's sin? Well, certainly his friends. But why did he forgive that man? Let's look at verses 21 through 26 again. It says here, starting in verse 21, The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. Now, The Pharisees and the teachers of the law had a legitimate concern. A rabbi, no matter how good of a teacher and miracle worker he was, a rabbi does not have the authority to forgive human sin, does he? Only God can do that. The religious leaders didn't say a word, but they didn't have to. The Son of God was able to read their minds. He knew exactly what they were thinking. Certainly they were squirming a little bit in their chairs and giving some funny contorted facial expressions, but he didn't need to even see that. He knew what they were thinking. He knew 
that this would be a marvelous, teachable moment for them and for everyone who would ever hear this story, including you and me. Jesus asks, verse 23, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? Well, when you think about it, the easiest thing to say is your sins are forgiven. That's easier because it can't be verified, can it? At least not here on earth. So any old fool could say, you know, your sins are forgiven. Now, those around that person might get upset because you're not supposed to say that on behalf of God. Only God is supposed to say that. But it is easier to say, isn't it? So Jesus asked them, which of these is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or get up and walk? Get up and walk is a lot harder thing to say because everyone in the room who had eyes that worked could verify whether or not it actually happened, right? And so Jesus, in their minds, does the easier thing first and then confirms his authority to do what they deem to be easier by doing what they deem to be harder, but what at the same time God had deemed to be most important, to have that man's sins forgiven. That didn't come out of my mouth the way I wanted. Let's say it this way. So Jesus did what they deemed to be easier, but at the same time it was what God deemed to be most important. He did that first. But since they didn't think he had the authority, he did that first and then proceeded to do what they deemed to be more difficult to prove that he had the authority to do what God deemed most important. That makes sense that time? If it didn't make sense that time, just I'm going to give up. Verse 23, which is easier? He does what they deem to be easier first and then what they deem to be more difficult second. What a wonderful thing. Bottom line, if Jesus had the power and authority on earth to do the much harder thing, to instantly heal a man's paralyzed legs so that he could for the first time in years jump up on those legs, start praising God, picking up his own mat and heading out, and the guys on the roof are saying, that guy was heavy. I'm so glad he's able to walk out of here on his own because I was getting a little sore carrying that dude up that staircase. And so these guys are rejoicing on the roof. This guy's rejoicing as he's part in the crowd. And the crowd is happy to move alongside. Even though they were shoulder to shoulder, they somehow found a way to to make space for this guy to head on home and tell his family what had just happened to him because he had met Jesus Christ. By doing what was viewed as much harder, Jesus was able to prove that he had the authority to do what God viewed as much more important. Extending forgiveness to a sinner who was separated from God. Verse 26, everyone was blown away. Mark, I like in his gospel account, he includes something else the crowd said that Luke doesn't mention. Mark says that those in the crowd were also saying, we have never seen anything like this. Oh, what a great thing for that crowd to say. They were blown away. They had never seen anything like that because they had never seen what happens when the mighty Son of God goes head to head with external paralysis and internal sin. Jesus knocked them both out like that. External paralysis, internal sin, gone at the word of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to share with you three important questions that I think we need to ask ourselves as we process this wonderful passage. Question number one, as Jesus spoke words of life, The Pharisees sat by as unconcerned spectators, ready to criticize and cast judgment. Do you do the same? Do you do the same? Those Pharisees came into that room that day not to learn, not coming with an open heart, not coming as the Bereans did, as we read about in Acts chapter 17, receiving God's word with great eagerness. They didn't come eager to learn. They didn't come eager to learn God's word. They didn't come eager to celebrate what Jesus Christ was doing, pointing people back to God the Father. They came as spies. They came as naysayers. They came as wet blankets. They came as critics, and they came to attack. And there they are smugly taking up rooms, sitting down, probably folding their arms, ready to pounce on anything Jesus would say or do that they thought was not the way they themselves would do it. And so there they were, ready to criticize, ready simply to spectate. And I wonder if if we do the same at times. 
Sometimes we come to church as spectators. You might say, I don't come to church as a critic. That's wonderful. I'm glad if you don't. But some of us do come as spectators. I come to church because it's what I'm supposed to do. I'll check off that box that I fulfilled my Christian duty. I went to this worship service. I'm done for the week. I open my Bible just like I was supposed to. I check the box. I close my eyes and join the prayer. I check off the box. I come as a spectator. I come to church with absolutely no expectancy that I'm going to meet God today and be changed. I come with no expectancy that God is going to slap me upside the head and say, there's something in your life that is wrong that I want you to change. I come with no expectancy that my love for God and Jesus Christ is going to grow as I'm in the presence of God's saints and in the presence of those who are coming to worship Jesus Christ with a whole heart as well. I have no expectation that my circumstances are going to change when I meet with God today. We dare not come to a worship service as the Pharisees do. Sometimes we're not critics. Sometimes we're not naysayers. But it's very easy to be like them when we're spectators. Question number two. Our faith and loving prayers can lead to others being healed and saved. Who is being healed and saved through your prayers today? Wait a minute, Dane. I, I, you still haven't answered that question about how four men and their faith could save this guy over here. You still haven't answered that question. Now you're saying that my prayers... And my love can somehow lead to others being healed and saved. That doesn't seem to jive with my doctrine. I want to tell you about this awesome couple days I've had this weekend. Started back in January. Many of you know one of our church attenders, Dean Fackrell. He's been attending church here for a year and a half. Kind of cool, he came on Easter Sunday, 2017. Some of you know this story, most of you probably don't. We spent probably 1200 bucks on a mass mailing that uh, reached upwards of 10,000. Is that right, Holly, 10,000 homes? Or is it five or 10,000? I forget. It was either five or 10,000 homes in our immediate vicinity inviting them to Easter 2017. If we would get a normal response to that, even like 1%, That would be like 50 families. We sent out this, and it was a great-looking invite, and we were excited about it. We were praying about it, and one person came on Easter because of that invitation campaign. His name was Dean Packrell. And I met him at our sunrise service, and I thought, well, it's great to meet this guy. It seems like he might become a regular attender, but shoot, God, I expected more than this, but oh well, thank you, Lord. And he started coming every week, and many of you know Dean because he's really outgoing. He's got the mustache, and he'll go up and meet everybody, and he's got that quirky sense of humor, so he'll throw out a one-liner on a Sunday morning during greeting time. And he comes to me on on a, a certain weekday in January earlier this year, about nine months ago. He says, you know, Pastor Dean, I need your advice on something. I've, I've got this difficulty. I need to make a decision because I, I like going to church here at FCC, but I, I'm not crazy about Victorville. It's kind of ghetto, and you know, I'm not crazy about living here. I've lived here a few years. I don't like it too much, but I do like the church. And one of the elders came up and asked me if I would consider being a trustee at the church. So I like the idea of serving here more. But at the same time, I've been looking at Southeast Utah, and in Southeast Utah, there's some beautiful country. And he's saying it that way: it's beautiful country. And he loves riding motorcycles. He used to be a professional motocross rider, and. He rides his uh, uh, street bike all over the place, and he says, there's some beautiful country. I've been talking to my friends, so we're thinking of moving there. Well, I knew that about four years ago, Dean had divorced his wife, and she lived back in Albuquerque. And so he's telling me about these two options, and he lays them out before me. You know, Dean, what do you think I should do? And I felt like the Lord was laying something in my heart. I said, Dean, I think the Lord is calling you to consider option C. Option C? Yeah, tell me about your ex-wife, how that communication's been going. So he shared a little bit about there had been some texting back and forth. And I said, Dean, I think the Lord wants you to explore the possibility of getting back together with your ex-wife. And so he says, Dean, I just don't love her. The love's not there. There's too much pain. There's too much hurt. And I said, I think you need to explore it anyways. And so he hesitantly reached out to his ex-wife, Cindy. And he hesitantly did this. And he did it reluctantly. But I got to hand it to Dean. 
Most of the time, if I had said that to someone in the church that was divorced, they would walk out of my office and say, forget you, Pastor. I'm not coming back here. You're nuttier than a fruitcake. But he said, okay. He wanted to honor the Lord. He reaches out to his ex-wife. And over the next few months, God worked a miracle. She went to her friends at her church. She goes to a Baptist church there in a suburb of Albuquerque. And she says, my ex-husband called me. It was the strangest thing. He was asking different weird questions about our relationship. And so the friends started saying, okay, Cindy, we're going to pray for you. And we're going to pray that God heals that marriage. And so about eight months ago, some Christian ladies in Albuquerque, New Mexico, began praying for Cindy and began praying for Dean. And then a couple months ago, Dean calls me from Albuquerque and tells me that they're going to get married. After four years of being divorced, after four years of being divorced, when Dean told me that, I said, Dean, if I can possibly be there, I want to be there. So I flew out on Friday. I took Southwest, so they stopped at every airport between here and Albuquerque. And yesterday, at 11 a.m. Albuquerque time, I stood there at the altar and got to co-officiate Dean marrying his wife, Cindy. I had four flights in the last two days. Ontario to Phoenix, Phoenix to Albuquerque. Yesterday on the way back, Albuquerque to Las Vegas. Woo, that was a juicy flight. Guys behind me, they were smashed. Anyway, that's another story. And then from Las Vegas to Ontario, every single leg, all four of those flights over the last two days, I was able to share with the person sitting next to me the testimony of Dean and Cindy and what God had done in the last nine months. I met a guy in the airport in Phoenix for my layover on Friday. And as we were talking, he told me that six months ago he had separated from his wife. And I said, let me tell you a story of why I'm going to Albuquerque today. And I told him about Dean and Cindy and ended it with this. You never know. You never know. So let's pan back and look at this passage here in this lesson and this important question. Who is being healed and saved today through your prayers? God inspired me and prompted me to ask Dean a question back nine months ago. Uh, Have you considered getting back together with your ex-wife? But I believe it was the prayers of those Christian ladies in Albuquerque fused together with some of your prayers and others that lifted up Dean and lifted up Cindy and God responded to the prayers of his people. So on this particular day, was it the faith of four men that saved this man against his will? I don't believe so. But it was the faith of these four men that prompted Jesus to look into his heart. And that man began to respond to the faith of his friends that were lifting him up to Jesus in his greatest point of need. And that man responded as his friends were lifting him up to Jesus. And that man's faith, coupled with their faith, brought about not only his physical healing, but his spiritual salvation as well. And so you better believe that your prayers for your loved one's salvation make a difference. And your prayers for their healing make a difference. I didn't know... I didn't know what Paul was going to say when he stepped up and gave his communion meditation today, but I love what he said about taking that communion time and praying for those you know that need to be saved. What a wonderful use of communion. We say, thank you, Jesus, for what you did for me. Thank you, Jesus, for what you're going to do someday when you come back and split open those those clouds and take me home to glory. Thank you for forgiving my sin. But can I bother you for just a quick moment here, Jesus? Can I also petition to you for my kids that need you? Can I petition to you for my grandchildren's salvation? Can I lift up to you my parent or my neighbor or my coworker or my friend or classmate that needs to be saved? Jesus, I want them to experience this relationship with you that I have. Jesus, would you save them? You better believe God honors the prayers of his followers when they lift up those that need him desperately. Who is being healed and saved through your prayers today? Question number three, before we ask God for health, we need to ask God for forgiveness. Are you regularly asking God to heal you and your family of your greatest health issue, which is sin? It's the root. Are you asking God To heal you. I wish I had done this more consistently when my kids were younger. 
But one thing I've tried to do fairly consistently in recent Sundays is when I kneel there and I have that communion cup in my, and that cracker in my hands is to pray for my kids by name. God, Kayla and Haley and Grace and I go, oh, I'm four bucks, oh well. Kayla and Haley and Grace and Kara. God, if they've sinned against you this week, would you forgive them? Fathers, isn't that our duty as the priests in our family? To ask God to wash clean our kids? Moms, isn't that your duty as a spiritual leader in your home? To pray for your kids? Isn't that part of our duty to pray for each other as fellow Christians in our family, our church family here to pray for each other? What a wonderful thing when we intercede and say, God, would you forgive them? God, would you heal them? We need to make sure that we're praying that God would heal us of that greatest affliction that has ever in the history of mankind afflicted humans, that affliction we call sin. And ultimately, the God that can heal the legs that don't work specializes in healing the spirit and the soul that are separated from our loving God by sin. We pray, first and foremost, that God would address the spiritual need and then address the physical need. Father, we come before you thanking you for this glorious story of healing this paralyzed man. And, oh, we wish we could have been in that room. Man, I would have loved to see the dust fall down from the ceiling and the sticks be torn apart. And I would have loved to have seen that man with those ropes tied to the corners of his mat lowered down in front of Jesus. When Jesus said, friend, your sins are forgiven, I would have loved to have seen the, the looks on those Pharisees' faces as their jaws were dropping. And I would have loved to have seen the looks on everyone's faces as that man, for the first time in years, stood up on his own two legs, rolled up his mat, and headed out the door toward home. Jesus, you were amazing. You were incredible. We love you. I pray if there's anyone here, oh God, that needs to embrace you as Lord and Savior, would you take the veil away and help them to see that they need you more than the breath in their lungs? More than the air that they breathe, they need you. Because what is spiritual is always more important and more lasting than what is physical. Lord, I pray if anyone here has a heavy heart and is struggling, that they would just humbly come and ask for prayer. Because we want to lift them up to you because the the prayer of a righteous man or woman is powerful and effective. Lord, be with us as we come to you with our needs, spiritual, emotional, physical. We come to you, Lord Jesus, as our great need meter. And we put these needs before you, asking you to bring healing. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand right now.